0: Hey.
1: Welcome to the Providence Road podcast. we are all going to have struggles. And God loves us and is with us in the midst of it. It's one of your, um, one of your, uh, 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 I'm losing my word here. It was one of the um, quotes that you had from the Bible at the very end, like God is with us always. We cannot be separated from God, right? And so a church cannot be a place where we say, oh, but not that. You can't bring that in here. We're not going to address your mental health or your suicidality or any of that we, we we're not here for you for that we can't have that
2: good evening and welcome to providence road thank you for joining us in our ongoing conversations Around mental health and our lesson series, Don't Mention It. We are honored that you're with us tonight and thank you for taking time to be with us. This is the seventh conversation out of eight that we're having and we are privileged tonight to have two um, eminently qualified folks to sit and talk to us about a really hard subject, suicide. And tonight, we are uh, have one of our panelists all the way from Florida, Michael McFarland. And uh, Michael, welcome. We're glad you're here with us tonight.
3: Thank you. Good to be here.
2: And also, we are privileged to have Dr. Amanda McGow with us. And Amanda, we're privileged to have you with us, and, and glad you're
1: here. Thank you so much.
2: So, Michael, we'll start with you. If you'll tell us a little bit about your background.
3: Sure. Um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Been licensed for a little over 18 years. It it might seem like this subject is a little bit out of range for your normal marriage and family therapist but uh, I did all of my clinical work in a psychiatric hospital which uh, piqued my interest obviously in this subject. Um, In addition to working within the hospital I also was a part of the mobile crisis team which would go into the emergency rooms and do assessments from that standpoint. you know, from that work, uh, I got into the prevention work, and so that uh, uh, got me occupied with providing uh, clinical trainings, community trainings for suicide prevention. And then um, also did, I was the state coordinator for suicide prevention for the state of Kentucky for three years. And, well, for the last, oh, eight or nine years, I've been working with the veteran population and currently work with the largest uh, institution in the United States that provides service dogs for veterans suffering from PTSD, um, military sexual trauma, and traumatic brain injury. Uh, So we're, we're actually doing suicide prevention by providing these dogs to service members. So that's me in a nutshell.
2: Well, Michael, we're privileged to have you with us. Thank you. Amanda, tell us a little bit about you and your background.
1: Thank you. Um, I'm Amanda McGow. I'm a clinical psychologist here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I work at BASE Cognitive Uh Behavioral. Um, My background in suicide um, goes back about 20 years. I am a suicide loss survivor. I lost a really good friend when I was in college to suicide, and that really changed the direction of my career. Um, I had planned to work with eating disorders and instead um, have focused on suicide prevention and suicide loss. Um, I have specialized training in dialectical behavior therapy, which is one form of therapy that has been shown to be very effective in preventing suicides. And I also do a lot of work with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, just trying to get free resources and information out to communities and am very pleased to be able to serve as the president of our board for the North Carolina chapter.
2: Amanda we're privileged to have you thank you for being here also want to remind you if you're watching us online or if you're part of our live audience and you have a question that you would like to ask our panelists uh, there throughout the presentation there'll be a phone number that will come up on the screen I think it's up there now if you'd like to take note of that number and text us your questions we're going to take about the last 15 minutes of our time together Uh, to answer questions. So we'll jump in with our first question, Matt.
0: Yeah, Amanda, we'll start with you. Um, We wanna know, is it possible to know when someone is having suicidal thoughts, and what are some of the behaviors or warning signs that someone might be having those types of thoughts?
1: That's a great question, and that's something that um, we all need an answer to. Suicide prevention really is everyone's business. It's a complicated answer, though, because some people may exhibit more warning signs, um, such as discussing suicide, researching suicide on their phone or on their laptop, um, such as major changes in behavior, um, sleeping too much, not sleeping at all, suddenly becoming very irritable or aggressive. With other people, for example, though, we may not see such significant changes, sometimes Um, We can't read anybody's mind, right? None of us have that psychic ability to truly see what someone might be thinking and feeling. And so we may not see those things. Um, hindsight is also 2020, and there is a little bit of tyranny sometimes in that. That we can look back, and what at the time appeared to be very benign behaviors, or maybe slightly problematic behaviors, if you will, were actually some of the warning signs that now that we see where this person's um, life ended by suicide, that that we kind of can look back and we interpret those differently. But it doesn't mean that we were not all doing our very, very best in the moment, Um, and we have to recognize that that we are just unfortunately pretty limited, um, you know, with understanding everything a person may be thinking, and even among professionals like Michael and myself. Um, There's a large body of research that shows that even the professionals are not great at predicting who is likely to end their life by suicide. It's about 50-50. That's like the flip of a coin. In other words, even professionals cannot be fully accurate in picking out who may die by suicide and correctly intervening with them.
2: So, Michael, what would you add to that?
3: Yeah, I think Amanda's made some great points here. And, and as you think about some of the warning signs that she's listed, so notice none of them are actually suicide specific. They're very generalized kind of, uh, of, of signs or symptoms, so to speak. And so uh, I think the, the direction I wanna go with, with this question is just helping people understand that suicide is an extremely complex phenomena. And there is no suicide is never about one thing. It's usually about a whole lot of things. And so, what I'd like to suggest is maybe thinking about it in terms of, of an analogy, if I if I could. Uh, while I had the opportunity to be in in Charlotte and, and uh, be at PR for for a bit of the time, I would drive back and forth on the weekends to St. Augustine. Uh, when you think about taking the freeway from St. Augustine to Charlotte, there really is no direct freeway. I had to make a couple of changes. Well, when you think about suicide, it's never a direct one-on-one kind of get on the freeway, I-95, and end up in Charlotte. In fact, when you stop and think about it, I may be able to get to Charlotte by not even heading in the direction of Charlotte. And so there are just all kinds of different combinations of roads and switchbacks that would actually lead me to eventually to my destination of Charlotte. And so just when you not only compound that with all the different pathways with then recognizing that each individual has a whole different set of, of elements that contribute to it, you begin to see that there's all kinds of layers here that make this just extremely complex. And as Amanda suggested, uh, for, for us as clinicians, I would love if I could pull out a sheet, a checklist of warning signs and say, okay, I got nine out of 10, so now I know where we are. It, this is, this is if, if we had something like that, we would be so much further along, but that's just not the phenomena we're dealing with.
2: So, Michael, our next question will start with you. Um, one okay. of the things that we've talked about at many of our sessions is language and trying to educate ourselves on what to say and what not to say. So, what kinds of questions may be helpful to ask someone if you're concerned about their mental health? What what to say, what not to say?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I would say, first of all, if we just have concern about... a whether or not someone may be struggling with with the mental health issue is just asking them right out. Hey, I'm worried about you. I'm noticing this, this, and this. And the more concretely you can anchor that question in terms of here's what I'm seeing, help me understand, are you struggling with something? Perhaps maybe we need to get you some help. Uh, Obviously for the everyday individual, it's not about trying to diagnose, it's just simply to say, hey, I'm noticing something. Uh, and I'm concerned about you. That's what people I think basically need to hear. I'm being noticed. Somebody cares enough to bring the topic up. And so to ask, ask that question. And and I would suggest uh, when we move into the realm of suicide, if I'm, if I have a, a sense about me, something's just not quite right. It's okay to ask someone, are you thinking about suicide? Uh, we hesitate around that because there is this myth which says, if I actually use the term, I'm actually gonna put the idea in somebody's head. And that's, that's just not gonna happen. We, we know that's true or not true because when we talk about uh, that lived experience, those individuals who have made a suicide attempt and survived that attempt, they tell us that that's, that doesn't put the idea in their mind. It was already there, but long before the discussion ever started. And so it's really important that we let people know, hey, I'm having a sense that maybe you're having these thoughts. I'm just wondering, I care enough about you to ask. And I would I would move it even beyond, don't ask just, are you having suicide thoughts now? But have you had them in the last week, last month? Because again, the phenomena of suicide is people move in and out of a suicide crisis. And so and that's one of the challenges. When I worked at the hospital, they would the doctor at the, the uh, emergency room would get a sense from the individual because of something that would be said that the individual was thinking about suicide. By the time I was called and arrived at the emergency room, the crisis sense had passed and the person was no longer having suicidal thoughts. And so people move in and out. They're not playing with us. They're not manipulating us. That's just the phenomena that people have. And so... It sometimes it's saying, maybe you're not having them right now, but I'm just wondering over the last several weeks or month or so, have some thoughts crossed your mind, because I do want to be of help to you.
2: Thank you, Amanda?
1: I absolutely agree um, with everything that Michael just shared with us, um, that there's a lot of wisdom in that. I would also just add on... Um, as you're having these important conversations make sure you're taking a very non-judgmental and supportive stance. We also want to be mindful of not biasing a question like you're not thinking of suicide are you because that prompts the person to you know like you're wanting them to say no so we want to create openness um, in the way that we're asking these things and then when needed we want to connect that person to appropriate care so if someone that you care about says, yes, I am struggling with my mental health or, yes, I am having thoughts of suicide, we want to then connect them with a professional who can provide them with some support.
0: Uh, I just want to ask a quick follow-up on, on that. Um, is there a difference between asking are you having thoughts of suicide versus are you thinking of harming yourself? Um, and is, mm-hmm. what, what would you say to that?
1: Yes, there is a difference. So we can have self-harm without the intent to end one's life, which is different than suicide um, A common example of self-harm without the intention to die is cutting behavior. Um, and so we do want to try to differentiate what is the intention, what is the person um, hoping to be an outcome within this. Both would need some professional support, though.
0: That's helpful. Um, So we've got a room full of people here tonight and many more joining us online, and we have a number of teens here. Um, uh, We had a call briefly to prepare for this on Monday night, and we were talking about how even just recently in the Charlotte area, we've had, I believe, three teens um, die by suicide. So um, this next question has sort of to do with that. What should parents know about teens and suicide? And uh, particularly if if you're either a parent or a teen who's concerned about a friend, if you know someone you have concerns about possibly considering suicide, what should you do? We'll start with you, Amanda.
1: Okay, thank you. This is a really important question. Um, Matt, you shared in your sermon this week that we know that the second leading cause of death for individuals ages 10 through 35 in this country is suicide. So this, unfortunately, is an issue that every parent needs to talk about with their child. The way that I view this is that, as parents, we talk to our kids about important topics like drugs, alcohol, sex, faith, right? There's a series of conversations that we have with these kids because we're trying to help them make healthy decisions and grow and thrive. We need to add mental health and suicide to that list of conversations. It is very important that we let our teenager know that if they are struggling in any way with their mental health, including if they are struggling with suicide, that we're there to support them. We're not gonna be angry with them about it. There's not gonna be a punitive response. We are wanting to care for them. We want to keep that dialogue open. With them. So I really encourage parents to, you know, get educated um, about the issue of suicide. There's some great information um, on the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention um, website for how you can have these conversations specifically with your teenager to create um, a sense of safety in talking about this. Suicide thrives in silence. As Michael shared with you, there's many different pathways that can lead an individual to suicide, and I have never seen it be the same in any one person that we've lost. Never. But we need to try to intervene along the way, and that's where having conversations as struggles of any kind begin is so incredibly important.
3: Michael? Uh, Wonderful response, Amanda. I, I, uh, I would suggest that the time to have this conversation is long before you have concerns with, with, your, with your team. In fact, I would suggest perhaps if there are parents parents in the audience tonight, utilizing this panel discussion, going home and saying, hey, let's talk about what we just heard. And let's let, let me understand what you're hearing, where you've been, where your friends have been, what are you hearing from your friends, those kinds of things. Just open the lines of communication and help people understand uh, this is not this is not about threatening people to get help, forcing them into therapy, any of that. This is, I care about you. Let's talk about what's happening, what you may be struggling with. And the other thing I think, again, I, I keep going back to this concept of, of of suicide again. One of the one of the myths that is out there is that if you are thinking about suicide, you automatically have a mental illness, and I think that keeps people from talking because that's the fear. The last thing I want I want, particularly as a teen, because there are so much going on in their lives, so much turmoil in their thought processes as they go through that developmental stage. They experience all kinds of things, and the last thing that they want to be thinking about is oh my gosh something's mentally wrong with me and so helping people understand hey you you may be having these thoughts and has nothing to do with mental illness it just has to do with the challenges that you're you're up against i mean if it's the second leading cause of death among teenagers it obviously has to do with something in that developmental stage and so that, that can be uh, something that can be activating. So normalizing in the sense that helping people understand, it doesn't necessarily mean there's something very dramatic that needs to be uh, done in terms of intervention. Sometimes it's just a matter of let's problem solve around some things that are going on in your life and maybe we can find some solutions and support and you just move right on through this.
0: Can I... Um... Add just a quick follow-up about if, if you ha- if you are a teen and you have a friend that either has expressed um, mm. that they are struggling with suicidal thoughts or you just have concerns about that, any advice we can offer them um, in that situation? What should they do? Amanda, maybe we'll start with you.
1: Yes, thank you for bringing that back up. My apologies. Um One of the biggest things that's really important as as a teen or, you know, even a young adult in your, your college years is to remember that suicide is one thing that cannot be a secret. So you can keep a secret about who your best friend has a crush on and what they thought about what their mama cooked for dinner last night. Like, those are all fine. But suicide is a safety issue. And oftentimes what we find is that adolescents are more likely to tell each other than they are to tell a trusted adult in their life. And so one of the best things we can do is to, you know, if a friend has shared this with us, is to reach out to somebody, whether it's a school guidance counselor, that person's parents, your own parents. We need to seek support from an adult because this is not something that you alone can problem solve with your friend. It is not you being a snitch, right? This is you taking a step, although it may feel difficult, to share and to break that trust, it's you taking a step towards helping your friend live and know that that they are loved, right? You're reaching out because you care about them and you want them to be here tomorrow so that they can find a way through whatever it is that's bothering them.
2: Michael?
3: Uh, that was so well put, I don't think I need to add anything.
2: Okay. Well, we'll send the next the question, question to you then. Um, what?
3: Do we say
2: or do if there's a suicide in our community? What should I say or not say? And and how do you talk about the passing of the deceased?
3: Mm. Yeah, good good question. And it kind of reminds me that we the previous question we didn't really address the whole uh, the language question. So maybe we can weave it in here. Um, Probably the most accepted terminology, at least people from the lived experience tell us, is that they would prefer the word suicided or died by suicide. Uh, There was a period of time where we went through uh, the, the accepted language was committed suicide. Uh, uh, Matt did a wonderful job in the sermon on Sunday talking about how that can be construed in a very, although not intended by the speaker, but can be received or perceived by someone who has lost someone as, as hurtful. So suicided, died by suicide. Um, someone who is grieving At a loss, and perhaps Amanda could speak to this directly as a loss survivor, it is okay, given the context, to use the word if it makes sense. Uh, Part of the process that loss survivors are having to wrestle with is that whole idea of of suicide. And if everyone around them is, is not using the word, then it's gonna make their own recovery more difficult. Not that you have to go out of your way to say the word, but don't think that if you've used the word "suicided" or died by suicide in an appropriate context of speaking with someone, uh, th- that you have inflicted harm. Uh, that's, that's accepted terminology. Um, but when, if we're talking with someone who's lost someone, it's simply just expressing our condolence uh, with the loss, uh, recognizing that they're going to have a, a long road ahead of them in terms of the grieving process. And just like any other loss, it is, I'm here to support you. I'm here to walk alongside of you. Uh, it's, it's not about me trying to decide whether that action of that person was appropriate or any inappropriate. Uh, as you've already said, it's totally non-judgmental because uh, making a judgment is of no use in this situation. It is, how do we come to a, a place of healing? and recognizing that it's just sitting with someone sometimes and we may just need to sit there and listen to them as they reminisce over the relationship and rehash what that relationship was like because as they do that that's a healing process they need to go back through those memories and pull them up and replay them even though for for us it's very uncomfortable because There's a tremendous amount of of emotion sometimes being generated at that time. But I guess what I want people to hear is when that emotion comes out, it's not not a necessary sign of harm, but could be a sign of healing.
2: Amanda?
1: I I think you shared some great things there, Michael. Um, Absolutely. Um, Additional tips I like to share with people is say that person's name. Right? Sometimes, um, unlike other forms of loss, for some reason in our society, we, we get afraid to say their, his or her or their name. And we want to go ahead and, and use that name, right? That's important for those loved ones to know that their loved one is absolutely still remembered. Another important piece of this that goes along with the no judgment, which is very critical here, is to remember that none of us would ever ever want to be characterized or judged by just one moment in our lives. So they are not just the boy who died by suicide. They have a name. They had a life well before this one moment in time, and their loved ones deserve and need to know that they are remembered for more than that. So that's another way that we can be very intentional in supporting our lost community. And I think more often than not with suicide too, I see people, um, this can happen with any death, but with suicide death, sometimes people go silent on them because they're afraid to say the wrong thing. And I know grief is hard for us in this country, period. You guys talked about grief as a part of this series. It is difficult. And yet, when we are silent and we don't show that support after a suicide loss, it is more likely to be perceived as they're judging me, they think I caused this. They think my you know, loved one is not in heaven. You know, something along those lines, even if that's not your intention. So don't not do anything. We want to try to avoid that.
0: So are there those who are at greater risk of suicide than others? And are there protective factors that help protect people from suicide? Amanda, we'll start with you.
1: Yes, so we do have some research about things that are likely to increase risk. As I say this, though, please keep in mind that you know twisted path between Florida and Charlotte that Michael shared with you is an analogy. So we have some research in terms of history of trauma, um, traumatic brain injuries, chronic pain, certain mental health diagnoses. Um, you know, a history of losing other loved ones to suicide, loss of a job, loss of a relationship, really a loss and a change of any kind that's unwanted as some examples. However, if you think about it, not everybody who goes through those things is going to die by suicide. And there are many people who die by suicide that if you go down that checklist of risk factors really didn't have very many at all, you know. So, this is where we get into that complexity piece of things. In terms of protective factors we do see um, some positives a faith community is one of those right that um, may help protect us Um, you know close relationships social support access to medical care um, all of that can be a part of it living in um, an environment that is not um, one where you are experiencing social injustice is another part of this um, and that's something that is often overlooked, but we're really looking at the fact that there's a lot of social factors now that can either um, increase risk of suicide or decrease. where
3: that myth actually started. But in fact, when I was doing suicide prevention for the state of Kentucky, I was determined to figure it out for our state and actually found out for our, the state of Kentucky, the month of April was the peak season. In fact, what I'm understanding from wider research is the spring months tend to be much more uh, steep uh, in, in terms of deaths by suicide as opposed to the holiday seasons. Uh, now, having said that, and I always recognize that when you bust a myth, you have to be very careful. I'm suggesting that during the holidays, we should say, okay, everything's all well and good because this is not the peak season. No, I appreciate the fact that all of those commercials who say, okay, we're we're in the holiday season, let's be on the watch out. I mean, that's perfectly appropriate because again, we don't know where people are in any given season of life. And so we always want to be, wary of where people are, what's going on in their lives, so that we can be there to be of support to them. But just, uh, I just find it interesting, um, because, and perhaps it's because of the show, A Wonderful Life, and some of the other things that happened during the holiday season, we we characterize the holiday season as a place of, of a heightened risk when when it really isn't. I guess one of the other myths, and we've already kind of spoken to it, is that, that um, suicide really is caused totally or by majority by mental illness. We really know that that's not the case. And I do know where that in particular, came from. It, it came from a series of studies uh, back in 2003 with Kavanaugh, which, which was a process of, of doing psychological autopsies, which is simply a process of interviewing people Uh, around someone who has died by suicide and getting life information, looking at records, and then inferring based upon that information whether or not the person who died did have a mental illness. That process, while psychological autopsies certainly have their place, they were not meant to do that. And uh, there's all kinds of biases from that kind of process, but that's where the 90% came from is a projection from the data that came from that. And so if you stop and think about it, the vast majority of people, when you think about how many people in our country have a diagnosable mental illness, by far the majority will never or have not been suicidal. Uh, There's various streams of, of, of evidence that could speak to that. I'll just point out one other, is that we would suspect that if we treated someone who was currently struggling with suicide with the traditional... Uh, therapy approach to that would be addressing a mental illness. What we know is that that therapy modality is not nearly as effective as as suicide specific therapy. So that tells us something that whatever, whatever we're getting at in terms of treating mental illness may not necessarily be addressing the suicidal issue in a person's life. So lots, lots of factors there that, that can contribute to that. I guess the other one, and Amanda, you'll, you'll probably have others as well, is just that whole that we've already mentioned is that, that if you ask about suicide, oh, I know what I wanted to say. The, the other one is once a person is suicidal, they're always going to be suicidal. That's, again, not the case. We know that people cycle in and out of suicide, and it's perfectly possible for someone to be having suicidal thoughts one day and for those thoughts to leave on their own and never return. You just never know. This is such an individual kind of thing. We would be in a real fix if once a person was suicidal, they were always going to be suicidal and there's nothing that we could do. The whole area of prevention would be for naught. We're in, we're in the realm of prevention because we know that we can do something to affect people's healing and recovery. Amanda, maybe you have some others that come to mind?
1: Yes. Um, an, an additional one I would add, um, I see this maybe a little bit more in working with adolescents, is that if someone talks about suicide, mm. they're just trying to get attention or they're being dramatic, right? So these, this kind of idea that it's dismissive and attention-seeking, we definitely do not want to take that approach to it. Um, you know, talking about wanting to end one's life certainly can be a warning sign, and we want to take that seriously. Um, so that's something that I see a lot um, you know, it just in the adolescent community and and, and adults towards adolescents. We always take this seriously instead of thinking that it's attention. I think you hit a lot of the other ones.
0: So um, we're sitting in a church building. We've got a lot of church folks here. As Kent mentioned, we've been in the midst of this uh, eight-week-long conversation in our faith community um, about mental health. Um, As we think about faith communities and churches, are there things that those faith communities and churches can do uh, in assisting in discussions around suicide prevention Um, What what you've seen that that has been helpful that we could be engaging in as a church or faith community, or not just ours, but anyone that may be joining us online. Amanda, we'll start with you.
1: Yes, absolutely. I definitely think faith communities are a part, um, an important part, of addressing um, suicidality. Historically, in some places within the church as a whole, not this church, but the church as a whole, it has not been safe to talk about suicide it's been that you're not praying enough or you're not in a good relationship with God or, that, you know, those kinds of, of judgmental messages were at one point in time what a lot of churches were giving back to people. There's some research about this and not just my opinion saying that. Um, so we are seeing such a shift in that now. This is the third church here in Charlotte that I have spoken at in the past four weeks. Um, that is fantastic. We are all human beings and as such, we are all going to have struggles and God loves us and is with us in the midst of it. It's one of your, um, one of your, uh, 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 I'm losing my word here. It was one of the um, quotes that you had from the Bible at the very end, like God is with us always. We cannot be separated from God, right? And so a church cannot be a place where we say, oh, but not that. You can't bring that in here. We're not going to address your mental health or your suicidality or any of that. We, we, we're not here for you for that. We can't have that. And so churches like y'all's is t- are taking this very, very proactive step to make sure we're having these open conversations. It lets every one of you know, this is something that's safe to talk about here. This is a place where you're not going to be judged for that. And having that sense of community, that sense of support, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, is a protective factor. It can be certainly very helpful. I think another area I'm really hoping churches will start to lean into is the issue of social justice. right? So we do see, for example, that suicide rates overall went down about 3% during the pandemic, which is great news. However, not in our African-American community. That's concerning, right? And so why is that? You think about all these other social issues that were a part of that. So we need to be aware of that. Churches already do a lot of times a great job in helping with other types of social justice issues like homelessness, you know, lack of access to food, healthcare, all of those things are also a part of preventing suicide. Because as Michael has pointed out, this is not just about mental health. Is mental health a part of it sometimes? Yes, of course. But as churches do other things, those are also efforts that can be promoting um, suicide prevention and better emotional wellness for all of us.
3: Uh, Boy, NOT A WHOLE LOT TO ADD TO WHAT AMANDA HAS SAID, BUT I REALLY DO THINK THE SOCIAL JUSTICE ASPECT IS SO IMPORTANT IN THAT THE PREVENTION COMMUNITY HAS FOCUSED SO MUCH OF ITS ATTENTION ON KEEPING PEOPLE SAFE FROM
1: DYING FROM SUICIDE, BUT THE FLIP SIDE OF THAT IS WE HAVE
3: One of the key factors in DBT is looking at reasons for living and, you know, the person who's thinking about suicide can give you a thousand reasons why they're thinking about dying. What we need to recognize is most people have a reason to live. And I know that because if they're willing to have a conversation with me, there's got to be some reason why they want to have that conversation. They haven't given up on themselves. They may not be able to identify it, but one of the things I can do is help them understand what is it in your life that is giving you a reason to stay alive. And the more that we address from a a cultural standpoint, a social standpoint, in bettering people's lives, helping people rise to a higher level of of living uh, for all of us and, and rooting out some of the social ills Um, Boy, we we make a better society. And one of the biggest studies uh, around suicide early on had to do with the social cultural impact that 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 can have in terms of driving suicide rates down. Uh, There's got to be a reason why suicide rates are skyrocketing 2000 and on. There's something not only wrong with people as they as they struggle individually but it's indicative of something in our social culture that we're breathing in that is debilitating, demeaning, and driving people down. And so as we address that, we really do make a better world for everyone.
2: One of the things that we try to do each week is uh, talk about resources that are available. Um, And because of of you guys' eminent qualifications, as with all of our panelists, We want to give you a few moments to just kind of talk about national resources and local resources. And Amanda, we'll probably start with you to talk about some of the local resources that are available within our community that people can tap into.
1: Absolutely. So here in Charlotte, um, we are lucky to have some local resources. Um, I'm always up. Front and honest, um, you know, the mental health system and navigating some of that can be quite difficult, um, but we do have two hospital systems here in town, Novant and Atrium, both of which provide multiple levels of care from outpatient therapy and medication management to inpatient care if that is what a person needs at that point in time. We have a large network of psychologists and other therapists here in private practices, Um, A lot of us are happy to do, like, free 10-minute meet and greets. You can see if there's a fit between you and a person because that therapeutic relationship is really important. So if you're thinking about seeing a therapist, ask. Um, I know very few who won't give you that, um, so ask for that if you'd like. Um, You know, we have free support groups here in town of all kinds. A lot of them actually take place in church buildings um, you know, But we want to reach out and kind of access those um, resources as well. And then the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has a lot of resources, lots of free information, lists of therapists who are trained in suicide bereavement, as well as um, a list of free support groups for those who've lost a loved one to suicide on their website as well.
2: So, Michael, what about nationally, for those who may watch this broadcast from other places besides Charlotte or North Carolina?
3: Okay. Uh, Yeah, there's two that I I would would recommend. First of all, just a a number that everybody ought to have in their phone is is the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is 1-800-273-8255. And I would encourage people, this is not something people typically think about, is if you want to know what it's like to call a hotline call them and just tell them hey i'm trying to understand how this works what it would be like for someone to call or if i had someone call what would happen they would be more than happy to walk you through how that works and and it, it certainly makes it much more likely that someone will use that if you uh, have called that or have them call it with you if if they would ever need that. So I would certainly recommend the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Uh, another resource that I think is really helpful is the uh, Suicide Prevention Resource Center, SBRC. You can Google that. There's sort of just a, a wealth of information on that site. There's even some individual courses that people can take through webinar to learn more about suicide and some other aspects. So uh, very highly recommended resource.
2: Thank you. Um, we're going to move in now to uh, some questions. I want to encourage you to please ask your questions and send us your questions. And um, Amanda and Michael, y'all have, have been so gracious to us. And as we work through these questions, we want to make sure that both of you have opportunity to weigh into the questions. So I'll start with uh, one of our first questions that's come in, and then Matt will ask one, and we'll just kind of piggyback back and forth. Um, Amanda, we'll start with you. What would you say to a teen when they have a friend say they are having thoughts of self-harm or suicide?
1: So I would first... um, validate and stay calm um, with my team. I would validate that it's a good decision to bring that question to me and share that um, so that we can talk through it and work through it together. I would absolutely share with them what I mentioned to you all earlier, that unfortunately, this is a situation where we can't keep a secret. This is not something that's safe. To know only ourselves and to not share. So then we would probably need to problem solve. Who is the best person to share? If this adolescent had a good relationship with one or both parents or guardians, that would be a great step. Um, if not, or if we have some concerns about that, then we can go to the guidance counselor, the school nurse, um, you know, someone like that on our campus to help our friend get the support that they need.
3: Not a whole lot I would add. I would certainly just say it's important to just stay calm, uh, not jump to conclusions, because, again, the language, self-harm or suicide uh, thoughts certainly encompasses a wide range of of behavior and challenges, so we're not quite sure what that's about. But uh, I I think we do need to find out from them. uh, Ask them, who what adult in your life would you feel comfortable for us talking to? And so I say the us in that don't send them necessarily to someone to go talk to. You go with them, you be their support. Uh, You're in this together. And so this is, that helps diminish that whole sense of telling on someone if this is about us together and, and I'm concerned with you. So who's the adult in your life that we can go talk to and figure out how this is how this is going to work out but we, we need to talk to someone because i'm concerned about you and i really want to see you get some help i don't want to lose you i mean you just talk talk straight to friends
0: uh, a lot of our questions um, that we've given so far have to do with uh, supporting Uh, People that may be struggling with thoughts of suicide or how we talk with people and our language, all of that. We actually have a couple of questions that uh, are are linked. One is, um, what if you are the one who's feeling suicidal? And also, um, another person very similarly said, you know, I hear it's very hard to seek help when you're going through these types of things. What can we look for in ourselves to make sure that um, that we get the help we need? So, Amanda, we'll start with you.
1: I think that's a great question. Um, I'm really glad that those came through because you're right, we haven't touched enough on that tonight. Um, You know, Michael mentioned the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That is an available resource for anybody to call. Sometimes from the comfort of your house, on your couch, that may be the easiest step for some people. You can also call that line before you've reached the point of being suicidal. And that's something that not a lot of people know, but I've heard it directly from the director himself. So I know it's true. They're not going to say, oh, you're not suicidal. We're going to hang up now. No, you can call them and get support 24 seven free. And in 98% of the cases, confidential 2% of all cases involve a situation where a person is in imminent physical danger of death. And they have to reach out to resources for that person. But that, that is only 2% according to them. And so this really is free and confidential support that you can get. That might be a way to reach out. Another avenue that I see a lot of people take first is to speak to their physician. A lot of times if we have a primary care doctor, we have some sort of relationship with that person. We may trust that person, and we may trust who that person would refer us to. Okay, So they have essentially vetted these therapists, for example. They have information about what level of care and support may be needed, and they're already in your life. So that can be one place to reach out to get some support as well. We also have crisis text line. I did want to mention that, 741 and you can text the word TALK or HOME. Crisis Text Line works the same thing, same way, pardon me, as the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, but via text. And so if you're more of a texter than a talker, which I know a lot of young people, you know, teenagers, 20s, that's more comfortable, then that's another way to reach out. But there are people out there who really genuinely care. We want to help you. We want to support you. And we genuinely recognize what a hard, hard step it can be to reach out for support. It is not weakness, it is the extreme form of strength.
3: I would just simply add if you're if you're struggling yourself, take steps to protect yourself. And but what I mean by that is very simple things. If you have a firearm in your home, that needs to be secured. 90% of the suicides that involve a firearm in in death. It's just the nature of the beast when it comes to firearms. We also know that just by owning a firearm, that home automatically is four times at greater risk of losing someone in the home due to suicide. And so just do the smart thing, uh, put that firearm in in a safe place, uh, the best place if, while you're going through a struggling season is to hand that firearm over to someone that will keep it secure for you. It can be returned to you once once you're through the situation, but the best thing is to get it out of the home. The second best thing is to separate the ammunition from the firearm. The third best thing is to do a gun safety lock. What I'm suggesting to you is, because suicide um, thought processes comes and goes in the heat of the moment when it's really bearing down on you. If I can just quickly access something that's highly lethal, I've just increased my risk dramatically. So any hoop I have to jump through that makes it longer for me to get whatever it is that I'm going to utilize for that action, the more safe I'm I'm going to be. And so I would say not only with securing the firearm, I would say particularly if you're in a home where there are a lot of medications, you might think about locking those up. You might think about turning them over to someone and having someone necessarily provide you the daily dose if that's what you need. Just for the season of getting through. The action of trying to protect yourself is a tremendous protective factor because that you're reinforcing in yourself, I know there's a challenge, but I also know I want to live. And so I would encourage people to think about that.
2: So another question that we've had come in around teens, and, and Michael, we'll start with you, and Amanda, please weigh in as well. Uh, do you know information on how social media might affect suicide rates in teens? And, and we should probably add adults as well. <laughs>
3: Uh, yeah, there's some there's some good research beginning to to come come out, which indicates that uh, just in general, social media is not a very healthy environment. Um, in fact, a lot of the the original gurus who designed social media, now you'd be interested to know many of them do not allow their family to utilize social media because they recognize it's taken a very dark turn. And uh, there are some very uh, um, uh, not so healthy uh, things that are connected with that. Uh, just, just, it's just an avenue that is so um, evasive to what we are as human beings. Uh, it, it's great to have that contact, but we are built, and this is, uh, it's a personal belief of mine, but I think I can back it up with, with psychological theory as well. We are built. For interaction, we need FaceTime, uh, and we need interaction with folks. And so I can have I can have two hundred and fifty friends on on uh, social media. That's not the critical issue. How many friends can I sit down and talk with face to face when I'm having a problem, and who will listen to me and take me seriously? I don't need you know drive by comments on the internet. I need real friends will stand with me and and support me as I go through things. There's just so many things that happen on social media that are not real healthy. I'm not going to be one of these people that say, you know, you you shouldn't do it. But uh, it really is, in my opinion, my opinion, a real health hazard.
1: So we have some research, um, kind of piggybacking on what Michael shared with you all, that social media is particularly um, unhealthy for our adolescent girls. We do see with increased social media use, um, more self-harm, more trips to the emergency room for mental health-related issues and for suicidality. So I think that, um, I agree with Michael, I can't sit here and tell you don't, don't use it at all, and it may not be a terribly effective piece of advice even if someone were to give that, but the reality is that each person really needs to take a close look at how social media affects them. I have had a number of people that I have worked with, um, uh, all age ranges, adolescent through adult, where they have taken a break from social media, either with intention or perhaps they went on a trip where they couldn't use their phone. They did not have access to that stuff anymore. And they noticed how much better they felt emotionally. Mm.
3: Preach. So Preach. Yes.
1: Yes. I mean, really, really take the step to examine your personal relationship with social media.
0: Um, One of the questions, uh, I I believe you may have alluded to this earlier, Amanda, but I think this question came in after you talked about that, so I just want to make sure that we answer this question. Uh, Someone asked, at my school, who is the best person to talk to first about a friend who is struggling?
1: So in general, we tend to think of our school guidance counselor or our school nurse. However, if you personally don't trust them, which is sometimes the case, or just don't feel comfortable with them, even starting with a teacher or another staff member that you do trust can be a great starting point. Several years ago, my daughter um, had a friend who shared some suicidal thoughts with her, and they didn't like their counselor at school. That's okay that's fine. Let's start looking at other folks at the school that we can connect with. So I would say start, you know, kind of going down the list. Who are you comfortable with? Just make sure you talk with someone.
3: No, I certainly wouldn't add anything to that. that that's perfectly exactly what needs to happen.
2: Um, Michael, we'll start this one with you. What should someone do if they know that their friend is self-harming? and doesn't want to tell a trusted adult after someone has told them that they should.
3: Okay. Um, Boy, that's an interesting question because we need to talk about what self-harm is as opposed to suicidal behavior. The two are not necessarily the same. I'm not suggesting one can't in certain ways lead to the other, but what what is important to recognize that self-harm uh, in the way that I tend to look at it is it is an attempt by an individual to survive. They're trying to cope, and there is a coping uh, feedback mechanism with the self-harm. It releases endorphins. It usually uh, finds a way to help calm the individual. And so when someone is self-harming from, from a standpoint of perhaps cutting or burning themselves, that kind of behavior they're really trying to deal with a tremendous amount of emotional dysregulation. And so what looks harmful to us and painful to us, for people who are in that place in their life, really find it very helpful and calming and soothing. Hence, it becomes extremely addictive um, because it takes more burning it takes more cutting sometimes deeper cutting depending upon the scarring if it's occurring in the same place to achieve the same level of 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 relief and hence the harm and so that can be a pathway to suicide behavior because once someone realizes that their path to coping is no longer a coping mechanism Boy, you know, when you you thought you had something that's working and it stops working, that's the bad place to be. And so sometimes people turn to suicide behavior as, well, I guess this is the only option. And so uh, I know it can be very uh, discomforting to see someone who engages in that behavior. but. I see them as real heroes. They're trying to do the best they can to survive. And so I would say just helping an individual recognize that I I see what you're doing and I understand how this works. But we need to get you some help. Because this is only temporary. It usually doesn't just go away.
0: I think we have time for one one more question. I'm just going to give it to you, Amanda, and um, I would just want to echo what Kent has said. We've just been so blessed by by you and by Michael tonight, and the insights you've shared. Uh, this final question is: Is it bad to say things like "you have so much to live for" when talking with someone that is uh, perhaps struggling with suicidal thoughts?
1: These are some of the most insightful questions that I've had from an audience. Um, that is a fabulous question. <laughs> you're going to hear a little bit of different things from different people um, in terms of suicide prevention field. In general, what we see is that trying to convince a person in the moment that they have a lot to live for can be invalidating in some ways. It can make them feel that you don't get it. You're not listening. Now, I believe everybody has a lot to live for, and the factors that are making them not feel that way are very, very, very often things that we can work on, we can improve upon, or we can learn how to live with in a better way, we can cope in a better way. But if that's kind of the response that the person gets back, we do run the risk of them not just feeling as heard and as supported as we would want them to do, to feel, excuse me. We cannot logically argue them out of suicidality. Right, we can't go through, but you've got your parents and your boyfriend and your job and all these things. It, that doesn't work, that is not successful typically.
0: Well, Michael and Amanda, it has just been such a blessing tonight to have you share. And um, I would say to those of you who are joining us online or those of you who are in person, if this has been beneficial to you in any way, we would love, if you're going to be on social media, although I think I heard some suggestions that perhaps we should do this less, if you're going to be on social media, <laughs> would you would you help us by sharing this? If you think this would be helpful to someone you know and get the word out, uh, we would love for more people to hear the insights of... Of uh, folks like Amanda and Michael and, the, and what they have shared with us uh, tonight. Um, next Wednesday, we will not be having um, a Wednesday panel. We are, because that next week is Thanksgiving. So we are going to have a Wednesday panel, but we're going to have a, a whole other week before we do it, and that will be on December first. And we will have a panel talking um, about shame. And as you see on the slide there, we will have Jim Katsutas and Susan Steyer and Morgan Lavender will be back with us again as Kent hosts them uh, to talk about shame. But we are so grateful you have decided to join us tonight. Again, please share this with any or everyone that you think would be of benefit. And this will conclude our, our panel for the evening. Thank you.
1: Hey, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share with someone who might also be encouraged by it. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so that you can always be up to date with the most recent episode. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give each of you peace. We'll see you soon.